Hello and welcome to the history of Vikings. The saga of the Volsungs is an old Norse saga made up of ill-fated romances, dramatic murders, and larger-than-life characters. In it, one reads of Sigurd the Dragonslayer and Brynhild the Valkyrie, the magical ring of power, and other themes that will be familiar to readers of J.R.R. Tolkien. The Saga of the Volsungs was first written in Iceland around 1250 AD by an anonymous author. Of course, the stories within the saga would have been preserved orally for many years until they were eventually written down in the 13th century. Our topic of discussion today is indeed the Saga of the Volsungs, and I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Jesse Bayak, Professor of Old Norse and Medieval Scandinavian Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. Dr. Bayak is also a translator of the Saga of the Volsungs, and I've included a link to his translation in the description of this episode. Dr. Bayak directs the Mosfell Archaeological Project in Iceland and received his PhD from Harvard University. Before we get to my conversation with Jesse, I want to tell you that we've recently partnered with Medieval Warfare magazine as a way to support this podcast. Medieval Warfare is the highest quality magazine dedicated to the warriors and weapons of the Middle Ages, featuring specially commissioned artwork and original maps that truly bring medieval combat to life. If you've ever wanted to support the history of Vikings, you can now do so by signing up for a digital subscription to Medieval Warfare, which is only 10 bucks every six months. If you choose to sign up, please do so via the link in the description of this episode, as the History of Vikings will receive a commission which goes directly back into the show. You can also get a 10% discount off of your subscription if you use the coupon code VIKINGS at checkout. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Jesse Bayak. Dr. Jesse Bayak, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thank you. I think this will be fun. Um, I like the subject, of course. The Saga of the Volsungs is a wonderful thing. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast, and I too am very excited about the Saga of the Volsungs. As an interviewer, I find myself wondering where the best place to begin asking questions is. I mean, when you're dealing with such an illustrious cast of characters as those featured in the saga of the Volsungs, and just really this immense mythological world that the saga invites the reader into, you know, what are the first questions that, that one is supposed to ask? But I suppose for our listeners, and I'm curious about this myself, where did the saga of the Volsungs originate? Of course, you know, is this something to do with oral tradition, something that pre-Christian medieval Scandinavians had passed down for generations before it was eventually written down in the 13th century? Is there any sort of hint as to where this story originated? Well, you really put your uh, finger on the hardest of all the questions of where does this story come from? And uh, on the, uh, to answer that, pretty much touches on just about everything in the story. The first thing is that it's an oral tale. Clearly, it's an oral tale. The other thing is it's a very old oral tale. Um, we have it 
preserved in writing, especially in Iceland, but it's also pictured throughout Scandinavia and everywhere that Vikings went. Well, not everywhere, but many places they went, like the Isle of Man and, and throughout Sweden, Norway, Denmark, whatnot. There are pictorial representations so that we know it was a tale that was told in oral period. And we also know that many of the characters go back to the migration period. That's the time in the 4th and 5th centuries when the Roman Empire was collapsing and then tribes uh, from northern Europe were on the move, crashing into the empire and quarreling among themselves. And it involves uh, people such as the Huns and the Goths and the Burgundians. And how it eventually arrives to Iceland, where it is uh, put down in both poems. Uh, it's uh, part of the Eddic poetry, which is these uh, poems which are from medieval Scandinavia, Viking Age Scandinavia, back from the year as uh, 900 and 1,000. And they come to Iceland and they end up in a saga and also as poems. So um, I'm sure we, we can divide this up and talk about the different parts, but it's, it's a wonderful question. Well, you know, this, the saga of the Volsungs has so many great epic moments within the story. I first became acquainted with the saga when I was actually uh, a young lad in high school. Quite a few years ago, I was taking a medieval history or a medieval literature course. I was classically educated and um, just remember being infatuated with the, the so many epic moments within the saga. You know, that moment where King Sigir, an enemy of the Volsung family, yet married to the sister Signy, you know, ordered a large tree trunk to be taken and 10 of the Volsung brothers bound to it by their feet, you know, held in captivity at a particular place in the forest. And every night, the she-wolf would come and devour one of them. Eventually, Sigmund was the last of the brothers to remain. He was covered in honey. And when the she-wolf licked the honey off of him, um, Sigmund had some honey in his mouth as well. You know, the she-wolf stuck her tongue in Sigmund's mouth. He bit down hard, and, you know, the wolf jerked back in pain, splitting the tree trunk that bound Sigmund and setting him free. So there's so many epic moments in this saga. And I'm wondering, you've been familiar with this text for many years. What are some of your favorites? Oh, I, I have favorites. But before I get to let me just tell you that that, that was uh, uh, one which I've, I've always liked. I'd never thought of it as, as, as such a good story as you just told it. Um, and that's the thing, that this tale is made up of endless short episodic stories one more wondrous than the next. I mean, this idea of the she-wolf uh, devouring one by one the, the brothers until the she-wolf is, is destroyed. Um, uh, my story is that um, the, the Volsung saga has been part of my life, and, and in fact, probably had a, a great influence on it. When I was 13, I had one of those uh, summers that we all have as a kid where I was bored and had nothing to do, and it was hot. and um, I found in my father's bookshelf, which I think was the time when I started finally started reading books because it was such a hot, boring summer, um, the, a William Morris translation of the Saga of the Volsungs, and I read it with wonder and stories like one you just told. So um, 
it's it's always been in the back of uh, my mind, and I think that's one of the reasons I got into this uh, Scandinavian sagas and literature and archaeology and Vikings and whatnot. Um, the stories that I, I the like the the story that follows on that the story of uh, Sigmund and Sinfjotli in the uh, forest living like wolves uh, from their underground hut where they they hunt through the forest and kill men who wander through the forest and live like animals and uh seeking vengeance uh i mean it's it 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 captures the uh the violence and the uh the nature closeness of nature that uh this society had and also the the uh, relationship with animals this this business of howling like wolves at night and and we know from from the um artifacts of the viking age that there there are characters that we we've called uh wolf warriors that look like wolves uh somewhat like uh, berserks that uh seem to be armed and it may it may go back to stories of rituals and whatnot but if if you're to really ask my favorite of all the stories in this is the one that in the prose edda um which is another one of these books that i i've translated for penguin the prose edda there's the a large part of it is uh the story of otter's ransom where uh the gods Odin, Hynir, and Loki are wandering through the forest, which means to tell you they're in the other world, and they come across a uh, an otter who's under a, a fall, sitting on a rock in the sun because he's caught a salmon and he's dozing. And Loki, the god who's always causing the trickster, always causing trouble, kills the otter. And that starts a series of events which eventually end up with the great treasure that Sigurd um, and the Ring of Power, where they, uh, Loki ends up down with the uh, dwarf Anvari and gets this ring, which of course is what has motivated an awful lot of very modern uh, 19th, 20th century science fantasy, Tolkien, Rings of Power and whatnot. So um, there's so many aspects to the story, but it's this mixture of uh, legendary, mythic, and um, sort of history that's underlying the thing that makes it so interesting. My understanding is that the saga of the Volsungs is the most coherent form, the most coherent version, I, I guess one could say, of this story. I mean, as you mentioned in archaeology and other medieval literature, we see these characters pop up. Uh, What does that really tell us about the narrative, the pieces of the narrative, the characters themselves, that, you know, it wasn't this coherent story like one can pick up a copy of the Saga of the Volsungs and read today? Yeah, that that gets back to the uh, what, what is so interesting about oral literature coming First of all, the only reason we have evidence of oral literature is somebody wrote it down. So there is this transition period, and and I think that's um, pretty much the element that you're focusing on, is that it arrives to us as a somewhat coherent story, written down, and one can follow it. Clearly, its roots, when we go further back, 
are very diverse. And the first thing is, if we go from the saga, and and, uh, let's spend a moment to talk about what a saga is. A saga is a prose story from Iceland and is different from most medieval literatures in that it's written in prose. Now, um, in the medieval period, most of the, the, the narratives and epics and whatnot were in verse. So, so this idea of writing in prose, which makes it very modern in effect and very readable, that's one of the extraordinary parts of it, that the, the saga that we have, which was written down somewhere in the 13th century, we estimate it's written from down from perhaps 1200 to 1270. It's just a guess, but the 13th century seems to be the period when these things were written down in Iceland. But it's clearly based on a series of Eddic poems. And we can tell this because as one goes through it, it uh, the Eddic poems are usually a tragedy. And um, they're uh, an episodic tragedy. And if, if you look at uh, the saga and, and as you read through it, you end up with one small tragedy after another small tragedy after another episodic tragedy after another one. So that the uh, person who wrote this I don't know if we should call it an author. I see it more as a, as a teller of, of um, an ancient story in the way he would say it in prose, um, was, knew his poems. When we go to the Eddic stories that have been preserved, and, and, and as you know, they, they are preserved basically in one manuscript uh, uh, from the uh, 13th century, uh, 18 of, of the, the poems in this one manuscript are about the Volsung. And clearly these are the poems or poems like them that the uh, person who wrote the saga, and we have no idea who that was, um, used. Then the question is, where did these poems come to? in the Viking period when they're really about events which take place in the 4th and 5th century and mythic events and legendary events in between. And there you go back into a real oral past where um, stories are put together. And um, at a certain point here, we might talk about the sort of historical basis of it. That ties nicely into a question that I, I was thinking about what can the saga of the Volsungs teach us about pre-Christian medieval Scandinavians, Icelanders? Um, you know, how important were stories to them? Before we get into the actual sort of historical basis of the saga, what can it teach us about these these people, these pre-Christians? Well, here, here's the thing. It's written down in a period, let's say, from 1200 to 1270, so that's the 13th century. It's written down in a society that had Christianized uh, Iceland. Uh, But Iceland uh, was a little bit different than most European because of uh, the social structure in Iceland. uh, Without a very strong church and monarchy and the monarchy and church dividing up the control of the society, um, many of the much older uh, concepts of, of culture and uh, ethics uh, are preserved in the Icelandic material. Um, basically, there is no real literature from, from Viking Age Scandinavia or the centuries immediately after in Scandinavia. I mean, there are some small histories and whatnot, because um, 
at the, in those societies, let's say Norway or Denmark, the um, church was in charge of writing, and they were writing in Latin, and they had no interest. So the Icelandic sagas, which are written in the vernacular, um, the Old Norse language that was used, and especially reflecting the the um, ethics and of the authors and the culture of the authors uh, or scribes or, or storytellers, however we want to describe them, give, I think, uh, a good idea, especially when it gets to issues like vengeance and uh, comportment and how one should react to different situations and the relationships among families and kins and uh, blood relations and whatnot that I think you're really going back into the um, ancient society that moves many, many generations and perhaps hundreds and hundreds of years before uh, Christianity. It, it might, might stop and just make one other comment, is that at the same time that the Volsung material, Sigurd the Dragon Slayer, and then also the, the uh, stories of the Burgundians and the Huns and the Goths are put into this Icelandic story, there's also the um, Nibelungenlied in Germany, in southern Germany, which is a South uh, German story. And that's much more chivalric and, and uh, much more, uh, at the time, modern European contemporary 13th century culture. And their understanding of the uh, concepts of honor and vengeance and whatnot is, I think, much less connected to the ancient beliefs uh, in the Nibelungenlied than is the Icelandic material to the ancient beliefs that we find in the Volsung saga. What is the historical basis for this, this saga? You mentioned you know, the Goths and the Huns and the Burgundians, which certainly appear in Iceland very far away from their, their native homelands. And um, certainly, you know, there's there's a lot of history in this saga, a lot of very old history. Um, so, for those unfamiliar with the the history of this saga, I guess I guess where does one begin? Okay, and and this is a wonderful question. The first thing is that one doesn't have to imagine that there's some sort of historical basis here, because they speak of. Uh, a man called Atli, uh, Atli, who is the Hunakonungur, the king of the Huns, and that's clearly Attila the Hun. And uh, they speak of a, of a Gunnar, of the Burgundians, and that is clearly Gundaharius, who's, who's known from, from many um, classical sources. The, the, the Romans and the Greeks wrote about these people. And um, in the German tradition, Attila's Etzel, and uh, he, we find him there. So that there are many historical elements in the tale. So there's, there's two ways to look at this. Um, and, and here's where scholars really divide up. Those who are, are, are more interested in, in, principally in just literature, tend to see the, um, the historical basis as not very important. And they look at it as, as, as sort of the glass half, half empty. Okay, it's, it's touched back there. But um, other scholars, and, and I, I'm in this part, I must admit, uh, is that I see it as a glass half filled. 
I mean, here is is uh, the memory of Attila the Hun, Gunnar, the uh, the the Goths. We have Ermanric, Jormunrecker, who we know from many uh, Greek sources, ruled the great um, Gothic Empire, the steppes, and he is destroyed by the Huns, who suddenly descend on him in the year three seventy five, and um, we know from other sources about the Burgundians. You know, there's, there's a, um, a wonderful historical event that happens. I don't know if it's wonderful. I shouldn't use that word. But in the Roman Empire, of course, is diminishing and diminishing as it goes. But in the 5th century, in the 400s, it was still there. And the, the frontier with the very dangerous groups on the other side in, in the Germanic wilderness was the Rhine River. And the Rhine is a very impassable uh, border. It's wide and it's fast running and um, uh, the Romans garrisoned it. But in, in the winter of uh, 406, 407, so we're in the early fifth century, the Rhine froze and it was no longer a barrier. At that moment, all kinds of peoples from across the, the Rhine River across the border east of the Rhine crossed over. That's when the Vandals came through. And the Vandals came through and they destroyed the town of, of is today, Worms. And uh, then they moved, and we know this from historical sources, through France, down through what is today Spain, and into North Africa. And it followed them all kinds of peoples, one of which is the Burgundians. And um, we have a great deal of information about the Burgundians. And they had a um, royal uh, family with Gundaharias uh, and Giselharias and whatnot. So there, there are so many historical elements in this which make sense. And yet it's jumbled in the saga. Uh, one can look at it in different ways. I think it's rather amazing that if something happened in the year 430 and 440, uh, and it's remembered in 13th century Iceland and written down, that that's the glass half filled. So there's, there's lots of history in here, there's legend in here, and in the Volsung saga, and there's a mythic element. Perhaps this is an oversimplification, but do you think it would be a fair or unfair characterization to say that perhaps one might view the saga of the Volsungs then as historical fiction? I mean, obviously you have these fictional elements of the supernatural and and all the rest of it, but then, as you mentioned, you have these elements of history as well. Well, um, that uh, historical fiction is a modern term. Um, I think it fits pretty well, and, and this, of course, is, uh, you know, can be discussed, but fits pretty well with the Icelandic family sagas. Uh, you know, the question is, what is fiction and what is history? Uh, history, history can be uh, a fictional account of something that is actually based on a society that is very well portrayed. In other words, that people do what they would have done in a society. It's very hard to distinguish uh, historical fiction from uh, from real history if it's done well. But we're t talking about the Volsung saga. I think the, the characteristics should be really that it's oral narrative. It's oral traditions which are 
repeated from generation to generation. The real question is, what do people remember that has some sense of uh, accuracy? And there's certain to be certain themes and the struggles between the Burgundians and the Huns seems to be a theme. The struggle between the Ostrogoths um, out on the uh, north of the Black Sea on the steppes of Russia who had moved down from Scandinavia and their struggles with the Huns. We know historically from Byzantine sources that the Goths were for a hundred years on the steppes of Russia. And, you know, Tolkien picked up on these guys as the riders. Rohan is a perfect example of, 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 of a horse empire. And within three years, the Huns destroyed them. So the, you know, these, the, the Huns came out of nowhere. It was a cataclysmic event. And, and that's still reflected in this story. So, so the questions are, are what are, are really the themes that people remember and find worth memorizing so that it is passed on from generation? It's a, not a really a question of memorization. It's a question of what is important for the story. Well, the fact that J.R.R. Tolkien uh, was keen to utilize some of the, the aspects of the saga of the Volsungs for his own literary narratives and his own mythological worlds is a question that's not even up for debate. And of course, Tolkien's works are extraordinarily popular, and many are keen to study the aspects in which Tolkien utilized some aspects of Old Norse literature. Do you find that to be significant? Do you find the fact that Tolkien utilizes some of the Saga of the Volsungs in his own work to be something that should be looked into further? Do you see that as something that's not really a big deal, somebody who is just familiar with uh, the Old Norse language and mythology and literature and um, incorporated, maybe even borrowed some of it for his own mythological realms? Oh, I think that it's wonderful that Tolkien used that. Uh, and, and one of the, the issues is that I see Tolkien as part of the Volsung story, the Volsung tale, which goes on from starting in the 4th and 5th century, and it's still going on today in science uh, fantasy and whatnot. Tolkien is just an adaption, as is Wagner. Wagner used the, the Volsung saga. Tolkien. Um, you know, when I, when I translated um, the Saga of the Volsungs, Volsunga Saga, I, the reason I translated it is that I wanted to use it in one of my classes. I, I you know, I had this wonderful position, Professor of Old Norse. And um, so I, I taught courses on this. It turned out the Saga of the Volsungs was out of print. And, um, and that was because of the aftermath of World War II, the misuse of the whole thing in the Nazi period and all that. And um, I couldn't get a copy. I had the only copies that were around were some William Morris um, copies from the 19th century. And despite the fact that they're wonderful, they're, they're pretty inaccurate. So uh, the thing is that... Uh, once I translated it, I became aware of um, the connection with Tolkien, is that Tolkien also had a translation. And at the time I was doing this, I, yeah, of course, I was interested in Tolkien. You know, he had a, had a wonderful job, something, something like mine, in which uh, he knew all these old literatures and whatnot. And 
he picked up very early that the Saga of the Volsung is the major text uh, if you're trying to find things like uh, different peoples and and powers and rings and, and vengeance and whatnot. Um, and Tolkien, I was, I, I mean, there was a bit of an argument going on that Tolkien himself uh, didn't give a lot of credence to the Saga of the Volsungs. And yet it turns out years later that he actually translated it as one of the first things that he, he published. And it, it was given out a few years ago by his son. So um, I think it's quite wonderful that Tolkien used this, adapted it, and, and uh, in a way of an oral storyteller, picked out what we were just talking about, the important themes, the important elements, carried it forward. And the historical themes too, right? I mean, could it be said that he was... I don't know, perhaps one of those scholars that looked at the glass as, as being half full, you know, the writers of Rohan basing those on historical peoples and so forth. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Is that the thing about Tolkien, which, which, which I really appreciate, is, is that he looked at this tale and considered the historical and the geographical and, and cultural differences that are going on here, and he sorted it out. And one can one can look at the well. I hope when uh, you know people um, who are listening, when when and if they read this thing, uh, they go through it. They think of it in geographical terms, and Tolkien did that exactly. And I think that's one of the basis of how he came up. You know, his idea of Middle Earth and whatnot. Um, of course, the idea of Middle Earth comes from from the uh, the mythology of you know Mythgard. But, but how he divided it up is not that distance from the idea of, of the different peoples and the different areas in the Volsung saga. And I will certainly put a link to your translation of the, the saga of the Volsungs in the description below. In addition to the saga of the Volsungs, Dr. Bayak, you have a website, oldnorse.org, which is quite honestly, just a treasure trove of information and resources regarding the Old Norse language, Old Norse sagas, the mythology, and everything related to that. And you've also published some books, the Viking language series, which teaches Old Norse. You know, it teaches one to to read and speak and write Old Norse, which I think is is so wonderful. And of course, I'll put links to those books in the description as well. But, um, you know, wouldn't that be something if somebody could pick up a copy of one of your books and become familiar with the language? I think that would really aid in their understanding of the saga of the Volsungs, not least the numerous other pieces of Old Norse literature we've discussed in past episodes of the podcast. But uh, for those not yet acquainted with your, your Viking language books, could you tell us a little bit about them? Okay, that's uh, the Viking. The Viking language books. It was a big project. I, I, you know, landed with this quite wonderful job being professor of Old Norse. Uh, there are not many of them, and I think it's just a wonderful thing that UCLA had such a position. And so I was teaching Old Norse uh, and Old Icelandic runes and things like that every year. And um, as I was doing it. it occurred to me that uh, the books we were using, wonderful uh, examples of scholarship, were, were rather old. They were from the 1920s, and some are really based in the 19th century. 
So each time I would teach a class, I'd sit down and rewrite how I would uh, do a book. And eventually, after a huge amount of work, the thing is, Old Norse can either be, it's again, one of these uh, glasses half filled or half empty, um, can be extremely hard, or you can sort of figure out a way to teach it, I think, in, in a reasonable uh, way. And um, uh, I ended up writing a series of uh, textbooks, uh, Viking language one, and then a reader Viking language two. And um, they, they I, I think, answer a need of trying to explain the grammar in a way that connects it with the society by reading texts right from the start. And it's based on word frequency, which, which is a modern thing. A group of, of Icelanders, um, when the computer revolution first started, uh, went through and did a word frequency of the uh, saga texts. And they came out with some really wonderful uh, results. Is that the first uh, 70 words, uh, most frequent words in the sagas, and there's 750,000 uh, individual words in the sagas, but the first 70 of these make up something like 70% of all these words in the sagas. Now, when you think about it, that turns out to be prepositions, you know, in and, and very simple words, on and stuff like that. But the first, the 71st word is the word for man, mother. So, so basically, what I did was I took uh, and divided up the 50 most common nouns, the 50 most common verbs, the 50 most common adjectives. And we come up to 250 words, 246 actually, because there are fewer prepositions. And um, these are the words that make up something like 89% of all the words in the sagas. So if you learn those, you can pretty much read the basics of, of Old Norse. So the book is based on that, that idea that instead of having examples of obscure words, you have examples and you get all the irregular verbs and whatnot in such things. So the, uh, those are what the books are based on, sort of an idea to make uh, Old Norse take the memory out of it a little bit and to make it easier. Certainly, that's, that's wonderful. And as I said, for all of you listeners, there'll be links to those books in the description below. Now, I, I also alluded to your website, oldnorse.org, which is an excellent companion, certainly, to the Viking language books, but also for those who are you know, perhaps not ready to commit to a full textbook and are keen to just get smaller articles for their um, you know, readership and, and what have you. I think that's a great resource as well. Now, um, how long have you been doing that website? I mean, I've known about it for, for quite some time and have referred to it uh, many times myself. You know, you know what? It, 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 this is all a huge learning process for me. Basically, um, on the website and whatnot, my students have taken in the lead. I, I've had wonderful students, and, I, and I've also been a professor for years in Iceland, and I have students there. So between these, um, they've really th uh, thrown themselves into helping to put this website up. And, and the idea is to make it a, a source where one goes to learn Old Norse, to have all kinds of information. And of course, being an archaeologist, I can't help but throw in some uh, archaeology on uh, the Mosfeld uh, excavations. But um, 
Yeah, and it's it's a growing thing, and our our goal is to uh, to make it sort of the uh, a central place where one goes if one is interested in in Old Norse. And it's a work in progress, and and we're interested in adding to it and making it more interesting. And uh, I'm finding it a lot of fun, actually. We're also working on a series of, of other texts of saga translations where we have a bit of a technique where we try to give all the vocabulary lesson by uh, chapter by chapter with notes and maps and stuff like that so we're hoping to have a series of books and it's basically myself and my uh my students who are are doing this and and the students have done a, a wonderful job no doubt well i have to ask you uh dr Bayak. And this is certainly something that I think you could probably answer fairly accurately. You know, there's been sort of this resurgence over the the past couple of years in in public interest, and you know, with relation to Viking history and learning Old Norse. And of course, you know, one knows why that is. You know, popular TV series and best selling books. Um, you know, you've written quite a few books yourself. Do you have any sort of inclination as to to why that is, I mean, just the fact that this podcast that you and I are, are talking to each other on right now is listened to by so many people is a testament to that that popular public interest as, as well. You, you know what? We're, we're riding a wave. Um, and I, I've done a little research in this, especially with the Volsung saga, is that in the 19th century, William Morris translated you know, William Morris was famous, as you know, he was famous for, for many things. And he was a, a, a designer and uh, had a, a Clemscott press. He had a press and he did, he did wonderful things. And he loved the sagas, went twice to Iceland, never knew a word of Old Norse, but he had an Icelandic friend. And, and I, I just admire it just greatly, is that William Morris and Erikur, um, his name was Erikur Magnusson, uh, would sit together in front of a fire and Erikur would uh, read the Icelandic and translate it. He would read the Icelandic in, in, a, in a book form and he would uh, give a very rough translation to William Morris who would wait for the muse to come. And then they would write down uh, how um, William would uh, translate this thing. and. His books, especially the Volsung Saga, became one of the most popular books in all of 19th century English-speaking world. And I, I have myself held the 27th edition in my hand, I've seen at the time. It was, it was published somewhere in the late 1890s or whatnot. Uh, and then came the First World War, and then came the Second World War, and, and the interest in all this diminished drastically to the point where I mentioned earlier, it was out of print. Basically, um, it's, it's just so interesting. And we're going through a wave where it's rising again, where the interest in this, because it captures a, a period in uh, the history of Western society, which, which is very interesting. Anyway, I, I'm not sure that answers it, but you know, you know what? I'm I'm a little shocked by the the amount of interest uh, in this. And and the other thing is, you know, we we mentioned these uh, old Norse. There are just many people who want to learn old Norse, and it's um, and and of course the sagas are um, extraordinarily well read. 
Yeah, it's it's certainly an interesting uh, phenomena. Uh, that's that's for sure. Well, Doctor Jesse Biok, it's been such an incredible pleasure speaking with you on the podcast today, and I'll certainly link to all of your works and website in the description below, and really do encourage people to go and uh, have a look at those and, and purchase copies of some of your books. But thank you again so much for joining me today. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure. And and also, I, I want to thank you for your website and your uh, podcast. They're quite wonderful. Thank you for listening to the History of Vikings. If you've enjoyed today's show and would like to support the podcast, you can now do so by signing up for a digital subscription to Medieval Warfare magazine. For only $10 every six months, you will receive bi-monthly issues of, in all honesty, the best history magazine on the market. In addition to this, you'll be directly supporting the podcast. If you choose to sign up, please do so via the link in the description of this episode, as the History of Vikings will receive a commission. You can also get 10% off your subscription if you use the coupon code VIKINGS at checkout. Thank you so much for listening. Join us here again for another episode.